Hello, I'm Eta Mystery and this is Healing Place, the podcast that explores people's stories of challenging times that have shaped their lives and led to change and healing. Today, I chat with John Sweeney. John is a renowned writer and broadcaster. He's helped free seven people falsely accused of killing babies, reported on wars, revolutions and trouble around the world. He's upset Trump and Putin, but he's probably best known for shouting at the Church of Scientology. He worked at the BBC for 17 years on Panorama and Newsnight, and he has written four novels and eight non-fiction books, including the best-selling novel set in the war in Burma, Elephant Moon. His podcast, Hunting Elaine, has been downloaded nearly 5 million times, and he stayed in the Ukrainian capital throughout the Battle of Kyiv. His latest book, Killer in the Kremlin, reveals Vladimir Putin to be the monster he is. In this episode, John shares his childhood journey from navigating poverty to facing bullies. For John, it became the fuel that ignited his superpower, storytelling, leading to his incredible journalism career and humour became his shield and ultimately his key to resilience. Let's meet John. Thank you for joining me on Healing Place, John. I'm a massive fan of your work and it's so it's a real honour to have you here today. So thank you so much for being here. You're easily pleased, Misa. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually not true. Ask my husband. <laughs> That's not true. I am a huge, huge fan of your work. It's really quite incredible what you've done. So thank you. Thank you. So I would really like to start by looking at young John. I'm really curious to know more about John as a young person, say from the age of five to 10. Where did you grow up and what was that like? Uh, so I'm, uh, you are who you are, you are where you're brought up, but also you are your mum and dad's kid as well. And so uh, what I like to think is that I've, I'm, I'm a natural born storyteller and I've actually got two uh, sets of genes all firing me up to tell stories. There is a kind of Sweeney side, which is ancestrally Irish, uh, and then there is the Welsh side um, as well. And the uh, Welsh and Irish people, I mean, you try and stop them talking. And, and basically, <laughs> I, 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 I've got this kind of uh, sort of whatever, I don't know, in space terms, this kind of pulsing whatever thing, uh, two explosions uh, happen. Mum and dad, my mother's grandmother, I like to tell this story, was a, um, uh, she was Welsh, uh, sorry, no, she was actually from Yorkshire, but she married um, a Welsh chap, Stephen Owen, who was uh, in the First World War, who was gassed in the trenches, went to Italy in 1917, fought with the, uh, against the Austro-Hungarians and the Dolomites, and I took my kids there uh, and showed them these First World War battlefields and the, the change between my kids living their lives and having a wonderful time skiing. And if they're lucky, they might get off with one of the Austrians or whatever like that. And, my, and their great who was trying to kill them and they were trying to kill him. I mean, come on. Um, but um, they... Eventually, um, I think he, um, he left home, and so there was just my um, my grandma and mum. Uh, they had a nice house in Liverpool, but they had it on a lease, and eventually, when my grandma was a very old lady, uh, the lease ran out, and she um, moved to a, a council house in a very rough bit of Liverpool where they, where they were brought up. But um, 
and though I think my mum was always her youth was clouded by uh, by poverty uh, and actually they weren't very poor compared to other people but they were poor um uh, anyway grandma became a theatrical landlady she had a nice big house and she let out rooms to um uh, people a lot of whom were poor actors who were working at the Liverpool Rep and one of them was Richard Bryars who got married um and um my grandma Edith Owen um cooked their wedding breakfast um Richard Bryars and his um, um and his bride-to-be and I met him once on a film set and he said ah oh, Mrs Owen and it was so cool it was so cool uh, he, she also had. Sorry, this story goes on forever, That's but I okay. like it. I'm trying to write. I'm thinking about writing my memoirs, but at the moment, no publisher is is that interested. But we'll see. But anyway, one of the other clients was an artist, a sculptor, and I think he was. Gay, and obviously, at that time, um, that was um, illegal. You could go to prison for being gay. But he, uh, he anyway, he did a male nude. And when he was out, he was a bit messy and grandma was very clean. And so she went into the room and dusted it. And uh, while she was dusting this, uh, this uh, uh, sculpture of a male nude, she, she knocked off the willy. <laughs> Brilliant. And then, and then out of embarrassment, glued it back on the wrong one. <laughs> The person who's telling me the story is a very old lady called Auntie Margaret, who said that your your grandma, which is a bit naive about sex, <laughs> like it's kind of like anyway. Uh, so, Mister, let's call him Mister Porter, the uh, the sculptor, the artist. He had a big, booming voice, very posh, and said, "Mrs. Owen, Mrs. Owen, have you been interfering with my nude?" <laughs> <laughs> oh, fantastic! Anyway, and that is my mum's side of the family. And then you just, okay, so that's kind of standard. And then there's the Sweeney's. And actually what I like to say is compared to my um, um, my nephews, um, uh, sorry, my cousins, I'm the quiet one. Oh, wow. I'm the shy one. Oh, wow. I'm the one. So, I mean, they're just full of, but what they were was um, um, an Irish Catholic family that at some point moved from Ireland um my dad's, Dallas Leonard, uh, his father uh, was called Hubert, and he had six children with um, um, my grandma and then left, um, and they were brought up in Birkenhead. They were really poor, six kids, um, no father, mm-hmm. uh, missing father. And um, my dad, however, uh, he got a um, – he could have gone to school, but he was there was just no money in the family, so he – he left school at 14, went to Camelades, became a, um, uh, an apprentice engineer and got a job um, as a, in a ship during the Battle of the Atlantic, <laughs> which wasn't uh, as a ship's engineer. And he was like 19. But by that point, it was early, late 43, early 44. I'm not sure of the precise dates. But so many uh, British engineers uh, in the Merchant Navy had been sunk by the U-boats, there was hardly anybody left. And the chief was a 70-year-old alcoholic wreck who played the piano who couldn't actually do the job anymore. And Dad essentially ran the ship, ran the ship's engines. Wow. Um, taking oil, picking up oil from Texas, 
lubricating oil for um, <clears throat> the engines of Hurricanes and Spitfires and the Lancashire Cotton Mills, which is one of the businesses, one of the industries that was keeping Britain alive during the war. And there was just a tremendous um, sense. Um, and, 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 and they were both of the generation that didn't talk much about the war. And, and it would come out every now and then. So once, Misa, I was in Yugoslavia, in Osijek. Yeah. And the Serbs uh, shelled um, um, the uh, Osijek and um, the windows of my hotel were were smashed out. Mm-hmm. And um, I phoned up my mum and said, the windows of the hotel have been smashed out. And she all smashed in. And she said, oh, yes, that happened to us eight times during the war. <laughs> and I thought, OK, I'm not, not going to compete with somebody who lived through a, a Liverpool blip. But they were very, uh, so my dad was an engineer. He left to see, um, I was brought up in, I was born in, in, in Jersey. Uh, he worked as the insurance engineer between 1950-1960 in the Channel Islands. We left when I was two, so I've got no real memories of it when I was a child. I was too young. We moved to Northampton, um, and I've got vague memories of that. At five, we moved to um, Manchester. Um, and I'm brought up between five and ten. I was brought up in the south of Manchester, and I've got, you can tell I've got a slight northern accent, which my 17 years at the BBC did its best to get rid of. But when I'm in a angry, I start, I start getting a bit, uh, sounding a bit rougher as I'm sure uh, the same with you. You don't sound rough at um, all. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, for those two, so my mum was, uh, there was no money, she didn't go to university, but she went to art school and she was a talented artist. She had something. Um, she was a great storyteller. She loved books. And when I was little, I used to get a car sick and she would ease or um, counter my um, uh, car sickness by telling the plots of all of Shakespeare's plays wow. and stuff like that. So from very, very early on, I had these two um, two wonderful um, figures. And obviously, you know, uh, no one's perfect, but they were good people. They were lovely people. Mm-hmm. And they uh, instilled in me a, um, a, real, uh, a real belief in, in you know, in, um, you don't know when your, your next meal is going to come, uh, come from. You've got to work. You've got to work hard. Um, and you've got to have a laugh. Yeah. Um, and you've got to tell stories. And also a sense from b- both of their upbringing was, was scarred by poverty. And both of them managed to escape it. And they, you know, ended up life in, the, um, in, in, in um, whatever, middle, middle class, in, 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 no, but in nice, um, in, in comfort. Mm-hmm. But fear of, um, fear of, of poverty and the awful things that can flow from poverty um, was was always there, and without and, and that sounds and, and anyway I I um, and I've got some of that too. Yeah, absolutely, and I think um, you know when you've got that fear, you're constantly pushing yourself to not go back to that place. I guess. Do you feel that resonates with you? Well, yes, and I, I mean, my uh, I've, I've been married twice, mm-hmm. um, divorced twice. I'm powerless with um, both my ex-wives. I've recently, when I was in Kiev, I uh, I slipped on black ice and I've um, um, badly went flying, oh, no. and I've really torn my tendon, and I'm going to be in um, crutches for three months or something. Oh dear! But um, 
well, my second ex-wife picked me up, uh, which was lovely, um, uh, from the um, from the stance that my son was um, doing something else, so he couldn't do it. So, so I'm pals with my ex-wife. My first ex-wife, uh, Anne, who's also very funny, she's a Northern Irish Protestant, and I was brought up a, a, an English Catholic. Um, and what Anne used to say was, I was brought up to believe all Catholics were dirty and smelly and never washed, and I knew it wasn't true until I met John. <laughs> 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 uh, and and, and uh, there's it in lazy and i um uh anyway let's let's not go into any of that Ap- apart from i've written 15 books mm-hmm. now i write books um i write books because i try and want to understand um the world and writing uh, writing something down helps me helps me deal if I've seen something awful. It helps me deal with how awful it is. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, it also helps me understand it. So I can, so these fear of these terrible things becomes at least more rational because you understand the, um, the, uh, the fear and the paranoia and the and, and Niagara-sized anxieties that mm-hmm. drive people to kill, kill and kill again. Um, and most of the time that people kill, when people kill, they're doing it. They're doing it for a good purpose, more or less, in their own minds. And anyway, I've written fifteen books, and part of the reason for that is to try and understand the world. But something else must be. You've got to keep the wolf from the door. You've got to yeah. keep the wolf from the door, and that's part of me. Brilliant. And so, is that what sparked your interest in journalism? This need for storytelling and, and getting to the the truth of sort of human behavior and the world. What is it that's really sparked your interest into journalism? I wanted to be a lawyer. Um, and uh, by the way, at the age of 10, we, um, we moved um, from, um, from Manchester down to Eastleigh. And I was bullied because I had a weird Northern accent. And I, and I used to cry. And my mother um, was worried about me. Mum was worried about me. And she sent me to elocution lessons so I could get rid of my Northern accent. Aww. And the, the elocution school was also a, a drama school. And everybody else in the drama school, there were, there were lots of um, uh, girls, um, a few boys, but they all had beautiful Hampshire accents. And joined Derek Sanders, uh, where the people who ran it, old actors. And they said, oh, for God's sake, you know, we don't want you to lose your wonderful Northern accent. No, 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 keep it, keep it. But we'll teach you some voice projection lessons. So, and this is stuff like you go, ooh, And so at the age of 10, rather than lose my Northern accent, uh, I got it back on steroids. But I learned, I learned to project. And so if you're a journalist, if, you know, there's 300 people in a room, um, he who, I'm afraid to say this, but he who's got the loudest voice, their question punches through. Yeah. I'm so grateful. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> so like, like this, you know, Mija, yeah. can you answer the following question? You know, I can do that. And you're like, and everybody else goes, right, what, what's that? Yeah. <laughs> so, so anyway, so my, but, but, but the other thing was that the, the, a sense of being bullied um, stayed with me. And as I grew up, and I grew up, um, first of all, the thing is that I use my sense of humor mm-hmm. and my storytelling power, which is like a magic superpower. But I use that to, um, to look after myself and make friends. And then 
in a slightly sort of backhand or rather the wrong way round, I actually grew quite big. Mm-hmm. Um, um, not massive, mm-hmm. but I'm five foot eleven three quarters, and uh, you know, like if a car uh, runs into me, it's going to get dented. <laughs> um, and <laughs> the, uh, but by that time, I'd already worked out my coping mechanism. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the way, John Cleese was enormously tall um, uh, at, um, when he was 10, 11, and told jokes to deflect uh, from that he was enormously tall. So this is a some kind of common thing, I think. It's a it's humorous mechanism. By the time I, I got big, I wasn't interested... I would hope in, in bullying um, people as a, as a poly. Anyway, what I used to do was go around school and stop fights. Um, so part of it, there was there was a sense of right and wrong and of, mm-hmm. of natural justice, and it should be respected and defended in an active way. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I felt that. I went along um, to a court case when I was 15 um, at Winchester Crown Courts, and it was a rape case, and I wanted to be a defence lawyer. And the defence lawyer ripped to shreds the um, uh, the character of the of the woman uh, who struck me as being uh, very shy, very broken by having to give evidence in public in, in in open court of this awful ordeal and convincing. And what the defence barrister was trying to do was to tear her character to shreds. And I felt appalled, and I came away and I said to myself, "I don't want to be a lawyer. I don't want to live in that uh, world." Um, and then a, um, a journalist from a Southern Evening Echo came along to a careers evening and said, people think journalism is glamorous. No, it isn't. After this, I'm going home and watching Miss World on the telly, just like the rest <laughs> of you. And, and there was something, exactly, there was something about the joke mm. that I thought, I, th- I thought there was something about the pricking of pomposity and the joke that I really, really liked. And, and that set me on my path to become a journalist. Brilliant. I love that. And I love that the sense of humor is this common theme that keeps running through right from your childhood, even to now. And it just keeps you, it sounds like it keeps you going and it's so important to you. And actually, as therapists, when we're working with frontline workers like the police, they often say as well that when they visited murder scenes, often it's the humor, that dark humor is what keeps them going. Um, so it just sounds like a very sort of similar concept. I was just going to talk a little bit about um, your work in terms of covering these traumatic stories. I and mean, you've, you've covered some incredible... Sorry. Sorry to interrupt. That's okay. Let's talk about humour a little bit more. Yeah. Humour a little bit more as a, as, a, as a shield. So just the other day, I was talking to my friend Vladimchenko. Now, he's this idiot Russian soldier. Uh, <laughs> sorry. Woo! Ukrainian soldier who arrests me for being a Russian spy on day two of the war. Oh, wow. And the difference um, is, so what I don't, I'm filming myself on my phone, but I'm I'm filming myself backwards. So I'm, I'm filming myself, but it looks as though I'm filming that way. Now, what I don't see, but behind um, uh, some kind of position that you can't see, is a very large Ukrainian um, anti-aircraft gun. Right. And it looks as though I'm filming the anti-aircraft position. Oh. So he's, he and everybody's paranoid about Russian spies. Mm. But I'm wearing my lucky orange hat. Um, I'm wearing my, uh, my camel-coloured duffel coat, as for, first worn by Trevor um, 
Howard in um, in the Third Man mm-hmm. when he's playing Major Calloway. I look completely British. You do, and um, and uh, I mean I did then, and I and I anyway. This guy says, and what happens is a voice says, "Stop filming," and I walk a hundred yards further along. It's an escarpment, the Dnipro, but, but this is facing east, facing where the Russians will come from. I'm filming myself talking to myself, doing video diaries. That's all I'm doing. But he doesn't look like it. Anyway, he comes out of the bushes with his gun and says, I told you to stop filming. Give me your passport. And I say, I find this kind of stuff irritating. So I look at him and I go, you're not a policeman. And he's got a loaded machine gun. Peter, never argue with somebody with a loaded machine gun. No. In particular, if they use so anyway, give me a passport. And the Russian spy, well, I'm not a Russian spy. Google me, Google me. Anyway, he takes me to his base and I'm, I'm, um, I'm captured. I'm on my own. I've left the BBC. I'm freelance. I've got no machinery, no backup, no fixer, um, no helmet, no flat jacket, no insurance, no nothing. I'm just making films for Twitter and I'm um, trying to reinvent myself. And uh, it's a disaster. And I just said, Google me. And, and anyway, and they booked me into the SBU, the head of military, uh, of Ukrainian intelligence, or the office of Ukrainian intelligence. And once in that sausage machine, I'm in it, so they can't reverse out of it. Anyway, Google me, Google I just... And then things slightly change. There's a nice lady comes and gives me a cup of tea and a biscuit, the Ukrainian way. Yeah. And then he says, I've, I've Googled you, and you, you've... Uh, you challenged Vladimir Putin. Yes, I've met him in person. I've challenged him. And then you've, you've, you've challenged Trump and Trump walks away from you like he's afraid of you. Yes. And Vlad looks at me and he goes, I think you have an interesting story. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Only a little bit. <laughs> so, so he's now in the Ukrainian Special Forces. He's been fighting for uh, uh, almost two years, non-stop, um, in a short break from the front. He did a little um, uh, a Twitter space, and, and we talked about uh, humour. Mm-hmm. And the great compliment, Vlad, and I'm last year, sorry, uh, 2022, in the summer of 2022, I went to Bakhmut seven times, five times uh, as a guest, if you like, of Vlad. He got me to the front line. We went to a Ukrainian trench. Um, uh, somebody, uh, so I'm in a trench, it's like 1914, oh 1918, where both the I'm in a trench, I've got my helmet on, I've got my, I've got stuff now, mm-hmm. I'm properly organized, I'm a flat jacket, all that stuff. Somebody gives me a cup of tea on the mug, not it says here the big sleep, but yeah. um, on this <laughs> mug, it says, um, something in Ukrainian, and Vlad and it says, best grandma. Oh, Chris Lockettone, he's a New Yorker, he's very funny. And he goes, hey, John, you can be a grandma if you want to be. That's why Ukraine is fighting this war. (laughs) (laughs) And we're cracking jokes, and the Russians are a mile and a half away. Wow. So so it's a thing. It really is a thing. And I do also, and one more story, how long we've we got? Four four hours. You <laughs> we we can do another episode if you like. So. <laughs> but but um, 
Um, I did the Bataclan as well. I reported on the Bataclan, which is this awful Islamic State uh, massacre mm -hmm. of young people in Paris. And um, we met a, a young British guy, an English bloke, and his um, uh, lovely French girlfriend, and they'd hidden amongst the dead, pretending to be dead. Gosh. The band that the Bataclan had, had um, run off, but they'd left the amps working. And so there's this awful queens as the... Um, um, you can hear the hiss of the amplifying and the cries of people who are dying and everybody's phones going off because mums and dads and loved ones are trying to get hold of them. But if they move, if they answer the phone, mm. they might get shot. Gosh. Anyway, we had a terrible... Uh, I had a... Sorry. They told their terrible story in a very powerful interview, which we did for uh, BBC Panorama. Mm -hmm. And that was... Sunday and on Sunday evening, basically we we'd finished. We sent off our uh, rushes to um, to back to London, um, where they could be edited overnight. And the plan was that we would, um, me, the cameraman, my producers would have a, um, a an evening off dinner, mm -hmm. get up in the morning um, first thing and catch a train, and then I would voice the commentary. Um, uh, you know that day and we put it out uh, Monday night. And um, I said to this couple, come, come and have dinner with us. And she was so anxious, she wanted to sit in front. Uh, so she wanted to sit with a view of the window. And I put uh, Dave Langen, who's a great friend of mine, who's an enormous man, six foot seven, six foot eight, mm -hmm. big, me, somebody, a big fat producer. So she, she wanted to look out, but she couldn't because there's three of us. And the waiter came and, and there's about 10 of us in talk because to make a program like this in um, in two days, you need people. <clears throat> and the waiter came along and said, what do you want to drink? And I said, we'll start with five bottles of Cote de Rhone. And <laughs> the second world was repairing on my, oh, and, and one, of my, one of the gangs said, welcome to the world of Sweeney. Um. At the end of the evening, we were cracking so many dark jokes that the, um, the guy said, you know, this black humour. And I said, shield mate yeah. it's your shield pick it up and keep it close to you and at the end of it he said you know been talking about black humor john i just want to say this has been so so funny it was almost worth it <laughs> brilliant i love it and the ambulance people and the fire people i get it i get it black humor yeah absolutely brilliant thank you so much for sharing that so I, I read your article recently, uh, Christmas in Kiev in the New European. It's a brilliant and moving article where, you know, you're sharing stories of people who've lost loved ones during the Ukraine war. I really wanted to know what does it, what goes through your mind uh, before visiting a war zone and, and what does it feel like talking to these people? I kind of, so I'm a storyteller. And I'm competitive about it. I, I want to tell stories that matter to people and that people are interested in. And so quite quickly, you work out the best stories are the, are the stories power and money do not want told. So in this case, there is Vladimir Putin sitting in the Kremlin and all his money and all his secret policemen around him are seeking to create an atmosphere of of terror for the Ukrainians mm -hmm. 
a bit of confusion and division for us in the West so that we don't properly support the Ukrainians as we should do because of all sorts of counter-narratives and eddies and flows of of information, many of which are lies. Some of them are true because there's always no one, um, no one or no group of people in life is perfect. But because imperfection should not mean that you don't um, help them just because they're imperfect, because then humanity would stop dead. Yeah. Um, so, so what's happening is Putin and the Kremlin are working very hard to kind of to get you not to go and have a look and see for yourself and make a judgment for yourself. And I hate that. Um, and I've hated it since I first went to Chechnya undercover in 2000. Now, that was super scary, super scary. The, the, um, and, I'm, and I saw what the Russian killing machine did to the Chechens, who were brown and who were mm -hmm. Muslim. And part of the West's great mistake in misreading Vladimir Putin very wrong, very badly for decades, was because the people who were his victims were Chechen and Brown and Muslim, that they were, they were not believed or not credited, or that their suffering was somehow written off. And it was um, a horrible experience, but I'm, I first called Vladimir Putin a war criminal 23 years ago in the Observer in March 2000. And I was right. And George W. Bush and Tony Blair and everybody else was wrong. Mm. And, 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 and what drives me, what drove, for example, when the, you could see the big war coming in um, early February, um, I, I booked a flight. And Misa, I have to say, I've, I've had some I've had some bad Valentine's days in my life, mm -hmm. but uh, that one was bad. And oh. flight was on. <laughs> and it was kind of like, no, you're all gonna die. you know, we're all gonna die. There was a little kid who was going around going, fire, fire, oh, and Stansted. And I cut up, you know, anyway. Um it was grim. But at the same time, um I'm doing a job. Like my dad was doing a job. He was bringing home the bacon during the yeah. The Battle of Atlantic and the Second World War, he was on his ship. He was making sure that he was doing his best to keep the ship going. So what I'm doing is I'm trying to tell the best stories. You know, and you, you find uh, people, fixers who are wonderful, the fuel producers, without whom um, people like me can't exist, can't function. They're very smart. They know people. And then, bang, what am I doing? I'm sitting in front of a laptop. I've got the quotes. I'm telling the story. And, and, and then I've got a gift. That, you know, this is my gift. There's often, I don't know, whenever I go to Stansted or Heathrow or whatever, I always, Stansted in particular, I think, because they, they target you. But there's, mm. you have to walk past all the nice, some nice men, but lots of nice ladies selling the fags and the, um, um, and the perfumes and the, and the alcohol. And I'm not a Puritan. I'm That's fine. fully in favour of all of those, all of those no things. No judgment here. Uh, there's something sad about, about, about these ladies because um, it's not, I mean, is it really helping us? Is it really helping humanity? And then like, you know, when I go to, you know, the nurse, for example, who, who put my, my bandage on the other day for my um, broken knee, I mean, like, she's under pressure. But the reason she's under pressure is because there's a ton of other people like me and she's working hard. 
Um, but it feels like this is something. Yeah. What I can do is tell stories. So I go to war zones, not because I'm, I like getting shot at. I don't, I don't like loud noises. I hated um, New Year's Eve, too, too many fireworks, bang, bang, bang. I was more scared than my dog because I was thinking I was back in Eve. But I'm doing it because these people need their stories to be told, mm-hmm. and I'm a storyteller. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, one of the things I wanted to talk a little bit about was what we call vicarious trauma. So it's a term that is used for those people or professionals who are working with survivors of trauma or are repeatedly exposed to traumatic stories. Mm-hmm. And vicarious trauma is, a, is something where it can alter your worldview or your beliefs. And there's some growing evidence also in studies that show that journalists can also be impacted by this vicarious trauma where it can then make you feel like the world is not safe and you start to avoid certain activities or people or engaging fully. So you're clearly very resilient because you, you keep going back to these war, war scenes and, and you're driven by uh, wanting to report the truth and the stories but how else do you sort of take care of yourself to stay resilient what other things do you do on a sort of day-to-day basis would you say that help you to stay strong and resilient um it gets to me sometimes mm-hmm. after the battle class um we made that film and and i i stepped in other people's blood um we there was a series of bars the killers killed a series of um, young people who were watching kind of football and just hanging out on a Friday night. And I stepped in some of their blood. Um, then I interviewed the couple who had been in the Bataclan. Um, then we have the stress of getting the whole show out. Wednesday, I'm at home in London and um, I'm cooking. It's the PM on the radio. And England are playing France in a friendly football um, in Birmingham. And um, there's a rather posh um, BBC reporter and a Brummy supporter, an England supporter who's obviously a Brummy, and says, so um, you're going to uh, sing the Marseillaise. Do you know the words, the Marseillaise? And the Brummy, and I'm going to do a bad Brummy accent, it goes, uh, and it'd be awful, but uh, uh, Birmingham, but he goes, uh, no, I don't know the words. But we can all make, can't we? <laughs> and 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 at that point, I burst into tears, and I can't stop sobbing. Mm-hmm. Um, so does this stuff affect people like me? Yes, it bloody does. Mm. Um, I, I'm I'm kind of proud of the fact. Well, please note, while I was doing my job, and my eyes were dry, and I, I delivered the program, I delivered the story. And um, I, I, I did as best as I bloody could. And it hits you like three days later when you're on your own, when there's no pressure. Mm. And kapow. And that happens to me um, every, uh, every now and then. Um, but at the same time, uh, I also, as I said before, uh, you know, um, the 300 hours before we started this, um, or whatever it was, so I'm joking, um, <laughs> So that uh, so Vlad Demchenko, one of the things he said when we did this Twitter space thing, um, he said, "What's fun is you know um, being in a war zone with somebody who cracks jokes." Mm. So and so there's a moment when 
Um, I'm staying with them in, a, in, a, in their base, although we're going to the front line every day, we actually stay about 20 miles away because um, even then, um, Vlad was doing special forces stuff. And so um, we have some boiled eggs and you and I'm and I'm expecting an egg cup mm-hmm. and a spoon and there is no egg cup and no spoon. They're, they're just they they actually use their fingers to take the um, the eggshell off and I've never seen this done before in my life and I and I do a kind of comedy sort of like what are you doing <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I say, so where's the egg cup no like, like by the way there's a kind of going on in the background the whole time (laughs) because this is incoming artillery and every now and then outgoing artillery so this is the the sound the kind of like uh, bass rhythm imagine disco but it not being disco and um the uh and then in the middle of this i said i am not eating a boiled egg without an egg and and the lads are all laughing their heads off at this crazy old english guy who is Really quite offended and appalled that there is no functioning egg cup uh, in the entire Ukrainian Special Forces Battalion. What are they doing? Anyway, so so humour, this kind of thing keeps me uh, keeps me from going nuts mm-hmm. most of the time. Yeah. Then when you get back, for example, I wrote Killer in the Kremlin, which it starts with seven thousand words of the. Uh, the battle, describing the battle of Kiev and what it feels like, and I wrote it in the present tense. So you, when things happen to you, you feel it directly. Yeah. Um, and, and that is tremendous therapy for me. It's, it's, the act of sitting down and telling somebody is the best kind of therapy. And what I tend to do is to do it with people who are like me, who've been through the same kind of experiences and have a drink with them. I'm actually trying to do a, a, a dry January I'm doing very well. What's the date? Well done. It's, it's second. One and a half. Congratulations. Days. And you're still coherent. Well, maybe. Um, but but the other thing to do, and because I'm a writer, um, it's easy for me, is to set the stuff down in a book. And so, so and, but please note, uh, you know, since the big war started, I've written two books, um, Killer in the Kremlin, and I go to the book with a Naslim. Uh, Putin's prisoner. I made a film, which you can see on uh, um, on Amazon, whatever it's called, um, Under Deadly Skies, which is about um, our experience of Ukraine um, at war in February last year. And 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 I uh, and I do that to keep me busy, to keep me pushing stuff out. Mm-hmm. Um, so because, and there's a wonderful quote from a Russian poet. Not all Russians are um, not all Russians are, are terrible people, but his name is Lomontov, nineteenth-century poet, and he wrote, he wrote this: "Restless, he begs for storms, as though in storms there is rest." I love that. And that kind of yes, restless, he begs for storms, as though in storms there is rest. So part of the thing is, is there something? there's something wrong or not quite right with me mm-hmm. that that pushes me towards these places. Okay. Who knows? Who knows? Well, I think 
really you know you, you've sort of talked about your books and how important they are to you as a form of therapy you know to write it down and a lot of people say that and there is a lot of scientific evidence to support that as well so if it works for you then that's wonderful so you have you I mean you're really successful you've written four novels including the best-selling Elephant Moon which is set in the war in Burma and you've written eight non-fiction books as well as all the other amazing work that you do so you know you, you've talked about your highs and so, some of your your lows as, as well so you know I'm really grateful for sharing that with us so when you're writing books however h- how do you manage your time and stay motivated away from the distractions of social media and the news because being a journalist and doing the work that you do I presume you have to stay quite connected. Yeah, no, it's 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 becoming more and more difficult. I've just um I used to I've been playing word games and chess and I've switched off the word game app because what I can do, I can, you know, wake up at two o'clock in the morning, see that Q's been hit or something like this, follow the story on Twitter, um, and then play chess against seven other people and then uh, play word games. And and then it's seven o'clock in the morning, and I've and I'm I'm, I'm half dead with tiredness, and uh, you never sleep. So I think there is a there's also a very troubling video of everybody's phone in um, um, in in Paris uh, by the Arc de Triomphe just before year, New Year's Eve, and rather than hug and clap and go away, everybody's on their phone filming the moment. Yeah, like every and and. and so the, the the clever people who have built these machines, these phones, are kind of getting inside our heads too much. That's a problem. Um, uh, nonfiction's easier because generally you get a some kind of advance from a publisher, and 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 the write this in this time. And I actually find the the scary. I I, ha, I love having a deadline. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to write a, a novel now about the Battle of Kiev. And I've given myself a, um, a deadline of the end of the month to at least break the back of the book. And um, I'm hoping to stick to that, um, which is why I should get off this Zoom call. Yeah, start, you, will, you will soon. You very, you very much will see. I'm really excited to um, read your new book, actually. So is that going to be in the near future? Or is, do you, you say you've got a deadline. How long do we have to wait for that? The, um, I'm... Uh, um, oh... Oh, it'll uh, maybe later this year or next year or something like that. Um, Brilliant. Yes. Yeah, so um, uh, uh, ooh, who knows? I've got to write the bloody thing first. Yeah. But once again, I find it therapeutic to write. It helps me understand um, the world and everything. Um, but, but, but it also, I can't because um, I've. I'm on crutches. I've got a bad knee. I can't mm-hmm. walk properly. I can't be in Kiev um, now. It makes much more. It, it does make sense for me to be at home. And I've done. Listen, I've written Killer in the Kremlin, yeah. um, but I can't be there. But if I can write a novel about, which is in a, it, it is almost like uh, journalism by uh, by other means, but it is in a very simple sense, telling the story, what it's like to live through the Battle of Kiev, and I did, and and what how that feels, and what it's like to sort of wake up in the morning knowing there are, there are people who are trying to kill you and everybody around you. 
and then how how does that relate to you know um and then you you dance on a table in a bar well why the fuck you know okay like, like that's okay. going to be a brilliant book and i'm already really excited for it so i'm i'll definitely be be looking that one up so Let's be honest, 2023 was horrible. We have witnessed an immense amount of suffering around the world. But what are you hopeful for in 2024? Is there anything that's bringing you hope? I hope Trump doesn't get elected. I hope the West begin to realise that actually Vladimir Putin is, he's a problem that's not going to go away. And we can abandon the Ukrainians, but that's not going to be the end of it. So therefore, we shouldn't abandon the Ukrainians. We've got to stand up. I hope that people get that. Um, I hope for peace in the Middle East. Um, there are two sets of wrongs and two sets of rights, um, but they're not balanced. And um, I don't want to get into the whole Israel-Palestine thing. It's a big, big thing. Mm-hmm. But please, God, let there be peace there. Let be there. Let be some end to the the mm-hmm. immediate killing as soon as possible um no things things are bad but then you know i've got a i've got a, a granddaughter who's very funny who's very charming who has she's a sweeney she's my uh my son's uh daughter with his missus and she has already a sense of mischief oh brilliant uh, and 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 there's a sort of like you know um well, I'm 65, so I've got I've got 15 more years of making trouble yeah. um, at, at best. Um, but then you, you know, I look at my granddaughter and I think uh, there's a there's a chip off the old block there, and the, and the way she mocks around, and you just think oh, um, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. That's really lovely. Thank you, John. Thank you so much for this really wonderful conversation, and thank you for your time. Pleasure. I enjoyed it very much. Thank you. I loved this conversation with John. I found his storytelling captivating and inspiring to hear how discovering your superpower and finding humour even in the face of witnessing horrific adversity can help you stay resilient. I hope some of you found this episode uplifting. If you have been affected by vicarious trauma, or would like more information, then please feel free to email me on meter at metermystery.co.uk. I'll be back next week with another amazing guest, so please make sure you're back here by following the podcast on Spotify or Apple. And if you enjoyed this episode, then please do leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or share with a friend who might find it helpful. Thank you so much for listening. Take care.